Hello everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Empty Notes, Cosmic Divergences. Before we start, I would recommend you listen to a certain album by a certain band. More specifically, I'm talking about The Race for Space by Public Service Broadcasting. Just put it on, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, listen to it in its entirety, or until you get sick of it, and then come back. Okay? I'll wait for you here. Alright, so I hope this has put you in a very cosmic mood, because today we're talking about alternate spaceflight history. Now, this is a very niche topic, so allow me to explain. As you know, I am a big nerd, but I'm a humanities nerd. Even though I did well in physics in high school, I'm simply not an engineer at heart. But I do love history. And I love spaceships. So when it comes to spaceflight, I am most interested in the history of spaceflight. On top of that, a few years ago, I stumbled upon this website called alternatehistory.com, which is one of the biggest forums on the internet about, you guessed it, alternate history. Now, I wasn't the first person to like spaceflight on that forum, so there was already this huge community of very dedicated space enthusiasts who had all these ideas about how the history of human space exploration might have gone different. Of course, I gobbled up a lot of these stories as fast as I could, and even nowadays I spend a lot of my time on this website and specifically still on these stories, because I think they're just very technically detailed, there's so much intricate variety and, and details here you can learn about the history of spaceflight. But I thought I could share some of this enthusiasm with you by explaining the specifics of the community that exists on the alternatehistory.com website, and explaining some of its best stories, and then maybe by the end giving you some of your own resources if you're interested in getting more into spaceflight, the history of it, and just all these sorts of stories. So, let's get started. When it comes to alternate spaceflight history, there is one story that most of the people who are specifically fan of this sort of niche will know, and that story is called Eyes Turned Skywards. This story was started in 2011 by two usernames called Workable Goblin and E of Pi, and its main divergence, because if you don't know, most alternate histories are formed from this one initial point of divergence, is back in the late 60s, back at something we call the Space Shuttle Decision. Now, I can't explain alternate spaceflight history to you without explaining some spaceflight history. So, here I go. Remember, I'm a humanities student, I know some of this history, but my knowledge is dwarfed by any of the people I will be talking about in this podcast, so keep that in mind. Very amateur work here. Anyway, back in the late 60s, uh, NASA was running the Apollo program because Kennedy had promised that America would put a man on the moon. But by the late 60s, you know, they were achieving their goals. They were setting out some of the actual moon landings when those would happen. And after that, you know, there was just no more will left to keep this large program involving like big Saturn rockets and moon landers going. So a lot of the budget was being cut and NASA had these big dreams about like nuclear shuttles and space tugs and there are all these wonderful sketches from the early 70s about it, but that just wasn't going to happen given the budget constraints of the early 70s. So, with their dreams crushed, NASA had to make an important decision. What elements of their original vision were they going to keep and how much were they going to be able to squeeze out of their very tight new budgets? Well, 
the thing they settled upon in our timeline was the space shuttle because they thought if we could get a space shuttle running, that would drastically lower the launch costs of a rocket because this was the idea. A space shuttle can be reused, which brings down launch costs, which means we get more rockets for the same money, which means we can run a bigger space program. That was the idea. There might be a higher upfront research and development cost, but if we can bear it and we can sort of work our way through the 1970s that by the end of it we will have a very capable space vehicle launch costs will go down everything will be great of course we know from spaceflight history that never really happened the space shuttle was a very ambitious program for the time especially because uh, there were all these conflicting interests as for what it had to do so, for example, I believe that the Air Force at one point was supposed to invest in the space shuttle, but with that came much more tight specifications for what the space shuttle had to do, which meant that it had to be designed in a specific way, which meant that it was less reusable or that it was less cost effective. And so, you know, before you know it, you have this vehicle which has to try to please everyone and therefore becomes very mediocre, very expensive and ultimately quite dangerous. So, I mean, I have a lot of respect for all the NASA specialists, all the astronauts and engineers who worked on this program over its, I think, like 30 to 40 year lifespan, but there are many who consider it a failure for these various reasons. So, Ice Turned Skyward is an alternate history that goes back to that decision point, those original talks back in the late 1960s about what the follow-up for NASA was going to be. And that timeline basically says, all right, what if they had, for some reason, just decided that the space shuttle was too ambitious, that it wasn't going to work, and they had scrapped it? What would be their second option? Now, the way I turned Skyward answered that question, the answer would be less space shuttles, more space stations. If you don't know, we mostly remember the Apollo program from having these big Saturn V rockets, but there was actually a more modest Saturn I rocket, which was, I believe, mostly just used for tests in low Earth orbit and launches in low Earth orbit. So what Eisstern Skyward says is, let's take what we have from Apollo. We have these Saturn I rockets, uh, we have some Saturn V spares, uh, we have Skylab. Skylab, if you don't know, that was the first American space station. And I believe they had two of those, like one in reserve. So we have at least two of those. And of course, we have the Apollo command modules and lunar modules. Now, the lunar modules have to be ditched because we're not going to have many more moon landings. Although actually in one of the early chapters of Ice Skyward, they get into the last moon landing, which is Apollo 18. So that means there's one more than there was in our timeline. But anyway, yeah. No more moon program, so let's just go with space stations. And what you get is a timeline from like the 70s onwards where America decides to stick with space stations. So they have Skylab, just like they did in our timeline in the early 70s. Then by the late 70s, they use that Skylab reserve to build something called Space Lab, where they experiment with more space station technology, like building a modular structure where you can couple modules onto your structure and get maybe sometimes other countries involved to bring down the costs of your space station. And then by the 1980s, they're ready to build like a fully modular space station where they just launch individual modules, they couple them together, and you sort of get the structure that we're most familiar with in our timeline from space stations like the Russian Mir and, of course, the International Space Station. Now, it's no coincidence that the designs I'm mentioning are from like the late 90s or early 2000s, when within the timeline of Ice Turn Skyward, 
these space stations are being built more during the late 80s or early 90s. Because it almost seems that with not having the space shuttle, the entire timeline of human spaceflight history is moved up a decade or so because you don't get this budget interruption of having to develop and then launch these big space shuttles. So once those space stations are built, where do you go next? Well, Eastern Skyward answers that question in a very interesting manner because what it does is it looks at a lot of concept moon programs from the late 90s. I believe some of these were actually like conceived during like the Clinton and Bush administrations. And it says, all right, once the space stations are built and there's not much to do in terms of like what's the next goal for NASA, they decide why not just go back to the moon. So by the late 1990s in the Eastern Skyward timeline, you get this international moon program where the United States and the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency and of course Russia because the Soviet Union still collapses on schedule, they all get together and they work together to build this launch architecture to head back to the moon. And from there it develops even further. This is the point where of course it goes further than any achievements of our own timeline so it gets a little more speculative. But it suggests that by the present day, 2015, at least that was the present day when the timeline was finished, human spaceflight is getting into building an international moon base, uh, which is provisioned through more reusable structures because there is still this sort of like SpaceX innovation in reusable landable rockets. So that still exists and that is used to build this international moon base. And you get a second wave, a second generation of space stations in Earth orbit. And that's sort of the present day endpoint of Eastern Skyward. And that's also, of course, where the authors ended, because they basically said, well, if we go on writing this much longer, then it'll get just too speculative and we wouldn't be able to guess from present day achievements what would be possible. Anyway, that's Eastern Skyward. It's pretty much the perfect timeline to roll into if you want to have this long, extensive story of what alternate spaceflight history can mean. It's not the shortest one. It might actually be the longest timeline I'll be mentioning in this podcast. But I think it's well worth a read if you're interested in spaceflight, spaceflight history, and of course, all these quirky divergences and prototypes that never went anywhere because this is where those will be developed. Now, Eastern Skywards is only the catalyst when it comes to alternate spaceflight history on the alternatehistory.com alternate spaceflight community. Wow, that's a mouthful. Because E of Pi, one of the authors on that timeline, worked together with his other user called Polish Eagle on a timeline called Right Side Up, a history of the space transportation system. Now, let's wind back the clock to those late 60s, early 70s discussions on the space shuttle and ask, what if the space shuttle wasn't so much cancelled as altered? That's where Right Side Up gets into the picture. Because it says, well, the problem with the space shuttle was not the space shuttle, the problem was with the specific design architecture they went with. In a way, they argue that the space shuttle was designed the wrong way around. Because if you don't know, the space shuttle uses this big booster. The orange bit is like the fuel tank and then it uses two, that's the white parts, solid rocket boosters to launch itself into space. 
But those boosters are the first stage and the reusable part is the spatial, which is like the second stage. That's the part that comes back. So right side up asks, wait a minute, wouldn't it be more economical to reuse the first stage and to design the first stage to be reusable instead of the upper stages? And that's exactly what happens. They basically turn the Saturn V first stage into something called a flyback booster. So a first stage that can launch then put a second stage into a suborbital trajectory and then fly back to a runway to land. It looks kind of clunky, kind of bulky, but in the timeline, and of course there's all this mass and physics backing it up, it works and it's very economical. It basically realizes all the financial dreams of the original space shuttle designers and it drastically lowers launch costs throughout the 1980s. And this is, of course, where the real spaceflight revolution happens, because once the spaceflight costs are down, you can launch much more kilos of payload into orbit. And then the sky's no longer the limit, then, like, low Earth orbit is the limit, and you just get to decide what do we want to put into space and how much money are we willing to throw at it. And then the 1980s turns into like this revolution of building new sorts of space stations, launching entire constellations of communication satellites, just like I said, completely revolutionizing the spaceflight field. If anything, its main problem is that spaceflight gets a little too easy, a little too economical. Because then you have to start asking, all right, we're not really in this position yet in our own world, so what would they do with this capacity? And that's when it gets really speculative. So like Ice Turn Skyward throughout the 1990s, there is this effort to build like a more reusable moon program to build up this reusable moon base and stuff. And of course, to have a lot of like space stations in Earth orbit. But then by the end of the timeline, again, when it nears the present, the timeline sort of tapers off a little. Simply because, as the authors admit, like, we don't really know what would happen if spaceflight was revolutionized to this extent. Like, we can't keep it as realistic as we want to within these marvelous and extraordinary parameters. So that's where the timeline ends. Actually, its last chapter is really solidly written. And if you only want to read one part of the timeline, just go for the last chapter because it's, it's great. But anyway, I would recommend you read all of it because it's significantly shorter than Ice Turn Skyward, but it still really gets into the specific launch architecture. And it talks a little bit about the space programs of other nations, less so than Ice Turn Skyward, admittedly, but it's still a great read. Now, if you've read either of these two timelines, you'll notice that their threads on alternatehistory.com will occasionally be interspersed with these beautiful 3D renderings of fictional spacecraft. This is because the alternate spaceflight community doesn't just include marvelous writers or great alternate engineers, but also some 3D renderers, people who have a lot of skills in the graphical arts and just like to wonder what these alternate spaceships would look like or what these alternate missions would look like. And so some of them have tried their hand at conceiving these graphically. And when it comes to the two timelines I mentioned, there is one graphical artist that I want to single out in particular. On the alternatehistory.com forum, he goes by Nixon's head, you know, like in Futurama. But on Twitter and I believe on DeviantArt, he goes by AEB Digital. And this is where he puts up 
all of his marvelous renderings of real fictional spacecraft can be anything from Star Trek to The Expanse to, as I said, these alternate spaceflight histories. And he's not just a graphical artist, no, 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 no. He's even tried his hand at writing some of his own scenarios. The first of these I want to discuss is called Kalima Shadow, an alternate space race. This story starts much earlier than either Ice Turned Skyward or Right Side Up. Instead of the late 1960s, the story starts in the late 1950s, when the original space race was just starting up. And we quickly realize that there's something drastically different about it, because Unlike in our timeline, where the first satellite into space was launched by the Soviet space program, you know, Sputnik 1, in this timeline it's launched by the US Navy? That's right, this is a timeline in which famed Soviet rocket designer Sergei Korolev died in Kalima work camp during the Second World War. Stalin had a nasty habit of locking up very good scientists and engineers, along with, of course, scores of other people. And in this timeline, Koreliev unfortunately bites the dust, which means that the Soviet space program, as the 1950s get going, is absent of one of its most important rocket designers. In fact, during his career in the Soviet space program, Sergei Koreliev was called the chief designer. And I don't just mean that in the sense of that he was the chief designer, but they didn't even want his real name to be known in fear that the US would try to assassinate him. That's how important he was to their space program. So what happens with that mind gone? Well, the Soviet space program sort of lags behind and America is able to capitalize on this opportunity by putting the first satellite into space and I believe also putting the first man into space. So the space race doesn't really ever turn into a space race simply because the US doesn't really feel challenged and it sort of goes on in a more moderate pace. But with that comes a lot of interesting architecture. For example, the US Air Force is able to complete its X-20 program, which was an experimental space plane nicknamed the Dinosaur. And this means that the US Air Force is capable of running its own independent space program for longer and at a more developed level. That also means, of course, that the Soviet Union tries to develop its own space planes to match capacity. And that's how the space race moves on into the 1970s. Unfortunately, as it stands, Kalima's shadow ends at the late 1970s simply because its author had other, maybe better things to work on. But I still think it's a very interesting exploration of the early space race and how the death of a single person, in this case Sergei Koreliev, can have such a huge impact on the entirety of modern spaceflight history. Now, Keeping with this one author slash graphic designer, Nixon's head, there is also a second timeline we can talk about called The Snow Flies. Like Kalima's shadow, its divergence starts in the Soviet Union, but it's also very much more focused on the Soviet Union. Whenever it comes to alternate spaceflight history, whenever it moves into the 1990s, you usually just see the same things happening politically that did in our timeline. You know, the Soviet Union collapses, Clinton will be president, yada yada yada. In this timeline, the divergences start off from a political standpoint. Due to some sort of political miracle, the Soviet Union survives into the 1990s. And with the lack of its collapse, there is also a lack of the economic crash that brought a huge halt 
to the course of the Soviet and then Russian space programs over the 1990s. What does this mean? Well, this means that the Buran space program can be brought to fruition. If you don't know what the Buran space program is, the vulgar way of describing it would be the Soviet space shuttle. And yes, you're sort of right. I guess the Buran looks a lot like a space shuttle at first glance. But hear me out, because the Buran was so much more than just a clone of the US program. If you look closely, you'll see that the Buran space plane does not have a main engine on the back. Instead, the main engine of the first stage of the entire rocket fits on the Energia rocket, which was the sort of booster that it was attached to. The interesting thing about this booster, this Energia rocket, was that, unlike the space shuttle booster, it could be launched on its own. So it could put unmanned payloads into orbit, or it could put the Buran space plane into orbit. And this is really important, because if you need to launch a space shuttle every time you need to launch a space shuttle, yeah, that gets expensive. But if you could just launch the booster without the attached space plane, you have options, and the Soviet space program would have had options. Of course, in the end, they didn't have options because the entire program was cancelled due to low funds due to the collapse of the Soviet Union, economic crash, terrible, etc, etc. But hey, if the Soviet Union doesn't collapse, or at least doesn't take the hit as badly, then it might be able to launch a few of these Energia rockets and a few of these Buran space planes. And so that's what happens. Throughout the course of the 1990s, the Soviet space program uses its launch capacity afforded by these big Energia rockets to put a better version of the Mir space station into orbit, since it's not dependent on smaller rockets in order to put these modules into orbit. And then after that, it capitalizes on the success of the first Mir space station to build a second one. And meanwhile, the US space program feels kind of competitive again, so they try to put their space station freedom into orbit. And you don't get the wondrous synthesis that was the International Space Station, instead you get these two space stations in orbit. But not everything will be hunky-dory for either the Soviet Union or its space program, because without giving too many spoilers away, it still ends up with many of the same problems that the US space shuttle did, and its end is kind of ignominious. Nevertheless, I think this is a very interesting alternate history timeline that focuses on a much tighter topic and a much shorter time frame. So if you just want to look at some pretty pictures of Soviet space planes and you just want to gaze at this program that could have been, this is a very good way of getting into that. Now, there's another big timeline on alternatehistory.com that this username Nixon's head did art for, but it's not primarily centered around spaceflight. This timeline is called That Wacky Red Hat and is primarily a cultural alternate history, which means that it talks a lot about modern pop culture. Very, very nerdy stuff. In this case, it's about Lucille Ball, who is most well known for her role as Lucy in I Love Lucy. But what a lot of people don't know was that throughout the mid-1960s, she had her own little film studio and she actually developed some very big programs such as a little science fiction show called Star Trek. That's right, 
Lucille Ball is responsible for first backing Star Trek. Eventually, her company was accumulated by, I believe, Paramount Television. But in that wacky redhead, she stays on and she doesn't get taken over by Paramount. And it explores what sort of program she would have continued to develop, including, I believe, like five seasons of Star Trek, the original series. So this is just a nerd's dream. Anyway, a lot of other users on the AlternateHistory.com forum got involved in developing this timeline and one area that saw a lot of guest posts was Spaceflight. So E.F. Pai, who is the author of Ice Turned Skyward and Right Side Up, wrote some additional posts on the spaceflight history of this alternate reality. Because there's actually a lot of political changes that are wrought by the staying on of Lucille Ball. Who could have guessed? For example, instead of Richard Nixon, we get Hubert Humphrey in 1968. He was Lyndon Johnson's VP. And then by 1980, John Glenn, that's right, the first American in space, becomes US president. And of course, once you have an astronaut president, you can be sure that NASA will get a lot of boost in funding. So, in one of the last guest posts for the That Wacky Red Hat timeline, there was this wonderful post by Eof Pai with art by Nixon's head in which he laid out what John Glenn would allow in terms of a space program. And it is glorious. So I would encourage you to take a look at the entire timeline because there are some truly interesting alternate developments in terms of culture, politics, and of course, specifically spaceflight history. Now, these are some of the complete timelines I meant to discuss, but before I leave you off, I still want to mention three others that are currently ongoing, and which I think deserve some attention as well. The first of these is Ocean of Storms, which is written by a user named Bo of Orion, and again features art by Nixon's head. This one is less focused on a specific point of divergence, but just generally asks, what if NASA had a slightly broader budget in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and so didn't have to be too tight with its budget, and could afford to develop all the interesting toys that they were toying with for the Apollo program? The second one I want to mention is called Blue Marble to Red Ruins and is a little more speculative than the realistic timelines we have been talking about. In this one, alien ruins are discovered on Mars by one of the Mariner probes and hilarity ensues as the US and the Soviets scramble, of course, to discover its riches. Finally, I would invite you to take a look at a little timeline called Mr. Hurst's Rocket Company. Partly because its creation was spurred on by a little writing prompt thought up by yours truly. A few weeks ago, I tweeted New Deal Space Program as a suggestion for an alternate spaceflight timeline. I was just curious how spaceflight history might have developed if an earlier development of rocket technology allowed a president like FDR instead of JFK to suggest a huge American-led space program. Someone on Twitter took a liking to this prompt and they went on to develop their own mini timeline on alternatehistory.com. Like I said, it's called Mr. Hurst's Rocket Company and it starts when Robert Goddard, one of the early pioneers in spaceflight, is funded by newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who sort of becomes an Elon Musk avant la lettre. 
So if you are not too wary of billionaires funding space programs, take a gander at this timeline and the very interesting course of history it develops. So I've now shared all of the alternate histories I meant to discuss in this podcast. But hey, what if you're really interested in spaceflight and spaceflight history now, and you want to learn more about it so that you might be able to write your own such story? Well, I'm going to share with you now four quick resources that you might be able to make use of in this pursuit. The first of these is astronautics.com, with an X, which is nothing more or less than a spaceflight encyclopedia. If you want to know about the various spaceflight vehicles that existed throughout history and their chronology, you can all find it here, including some interesting sketches. This also includes a lot of concept spacecraft that were never even flown, so go ahead and take a look, it can be very interesting. The second resource I want to talk about is Atomic Rockets. Here you will find a lot of simple explanations about spaceflight dynamics, how spaceflight works in general, how it might work in the future, in short, if you want to keep your science fiction story even slightly realistic, Atomic Rockets would be a good website to use. Now, if you want to talk about spaceflight history more directly, you could use David S.F. Portree's Spaceflight blog. He blogs a lot about specific developments in spaceflight history, lays them out really well, gives a lot of sources. In short, it's basically a free education in spaceflight history, and I would encourage you to look it up. Lastly, if spaceflight history interests you for all the delightful could-have-beens, then I would direct you towards the Full Steps blog, which specifically looks at all these space programs that never got off the ground, that never were properly developed, including all the high-minded dreams of late 60s NASA planners, to Soviet rockets, to just whatever. You'll find it there, and it can get pretty niche and pretty fascinating. All right. We've come to the end of this podcast now, since I've told you just about everything I know about this niche subject. I hope you can tell it's a pretty big fascination of mine, but I'm not the only one. And if you want to listen to another podcast that is even remotely like this, I would recommend Marooned on Mars, which is a read-through podcast of the Mars Trilogy, which is a trilogy of science fiction novels by Kim Stanley Robinson. These novels are discussed by two Chicago academics, and if you like a big literature review of a few big books, this is the best it gets. And it also delves really deep into science fiction, philosophy, socialism. If you like this podcast, that'll be right up your alley as well. For now, I would just encourage you to keep your eyes turned skyward and tune in next time for another episode of Empty Notes. I don't know what we'll be talking about. I don't think it can get any more nerdy than this, but we'll see. So, until then, this has been Moon, and I hope to see you soon.